No corners have been cut. All the same regulatory environments in place. In fact, the bar went up from a regulatory standpoint. The FDA asked for more people to be involved in the clinical studies than, than a flu vaccine would typically be tested in. So really, um, the, the urgency came from the pandemic and by creating these more streamlined processes, not by changing the rules. Mm. And I think that's something that, you know, your, your, your listeners and viewers are really going to want to understand. The rules weren't changed. If anything, like I said, they were a little bit more stringent. Welcome to the ninth episode of News Points on the Air, a production of the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists. I'm your host, Milan Medley. We're taking some time to discuss the COVID-19 vaccines with Dr. Stephen Smith, Senior Vice President and Chief Scientific Officer of Advent Health. Advent Health is one of five Adventist healthcare institutions within the North American Division territory. And it is also one of the largest healthcare networks in the United States, with 80,000 employees operating on nearly 50 hospital campuses in nine states. In his role, Dr. Stephen Smith guides the research vision and scientific expansion for Advent Health. He is also the scientific director for the Translational Research Institute for Metabolism and Diabetes. And that is dedicated to the study of obesity, metabolism, diabetes, and the metabolic origins of cardiovascular disease. I'm delighted to have him here to walk us through Vaccine Development 101 and also the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines and whether they should be trusted. Spoiler alert, yes, they should definitely be trusted. Dr. Smith, can you describe uh, the role of a chief scientific officer in a large hospital network? What are your day-to-day uh, what is your what do your days look like and what do your weeks look like? Yeah, so I split my time in really three different areas. Um, first off, we have a very large research uh, enterprise across the company. We we have about 250 or more um, employees, about 250 physicians that do research uh, within Advent Health. And that's a big uh, research engine that does the clinical trials and the different studies. And, um, and that takes about a third of my time. There's a lot mm. to keep up with with that. The other third is really um, advising the company on different matters of science. We're going to talk a little bit about that in the next few minutes when it comes to how we reviewed the science around the vaccines here in North America. And, and that's one of many components where we're asked to uh, conduct scientific review to advise the company, to advise different service lines and, and that sort of thing. The, the third part is really more strategic. It's how we look over the horizon. What are the new technologies, the new advances in biomedical sciences that are that are ready to come into the company. And many times our physicians out on the front lines are evaluating different new surgical procedures or different medications that are in development or big data views of how we think about um, taking care of our patients. So, so these are new advancements that we're constantly out as a group scanning 
to try to see when are they ready to bring into the organization. So those are kind of the three big areas. Um, I would say in the last year, it's been all COVID all the time, you know, starting um, about, you know, 10, 11 months ago. And so the team has really coalesced around that. And we've started actually new lines of research in the last year. One in particular is our critical care research unit mm. uh, here in Orlando that is investigating new treatments, new medications, new approaches uh, to take care of our sickest patients in our ICUs and in our hospitals. And so there's always something new. That's, it, it, it never, never stands still. We, we keep new innovation coming into the hospital and into our care facilities. And that's really my job is to make sure that, that um, we serve as a catalyst to get those ideas into the organization. And oftentimes a research protocol where we invite people to volunteer is the first introduction of a technology or a medication or a new surgical procedure mm. into the healthcare setting. And then that next step is to get it out, <laughs> you know, across all of our hospitals and clinics. And that's, uh, that's what our clinical colleagues do. That's fascinating. And like you said, you know, it's been all, or, you know, COVID-19 has taken up a majority of your time, but briefly before it was COVID-19 in terms kind of like driving the research needs, just briefly, can you like maybe list some of the other things, um, exciting uh, uh, topics or, you know, procedures and all that, that, that you were, you and your team were looking into prior to this worldwide uh, pandemic? Yeah, so a couple of areas are really advancing uh, quickly right now. Um, cancer therapy is really an area that we've been investing quite substantially in. And we know that um, every person who has cancer has a different kind of cancer. Mm -hmm. And we're using what's called precision medicine. It's using the genomics of a particular person's tumor to tailor therapies wow. against their cancer. And that lock and key really can radically change how people respond to the treatments that, that we have. And so that, that area, that whole space of using genomics to advance our cancer therapeutics is a big deal for us. We're also working on a, a large research partnership with uh, colleagues at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. Mm -hmm. That was established about a year and a half ago. And so we're really amping up our uh, cancer research program not only clinical studies, but getting at more basic science, more fundamental understanding of how uh, cancer develops and how we can treat that most effectively. So that's a, been a big push for us before the pandemic. And actually during the pandemic, we've mm. con continued that work because you know, cancer doesn't take a retreat when right. you have a pandemic around right. you. And so we've continued to push on, the, on that really hard. The other areas I think, um, that we, we continue to develop is in the area of um, uh, cardiovascular diseases. Uh, we know so much about how to both diagnose and treat cardiovascular diseases, and we continue to refine those life-saving uh, treatments, not only you know, new pacemakers or new interventions, but also new prevention, new ways, new ways of preventing the development of cardiovascular disease. So that research unit has been driving uh, very far and fast in the last mm. year, actually. We continue to work in Alzheimer's in uh, really trying to understand 
Are there new breakthrough uh, treatments for Alzheimer's, which has been a real challenge in the, the larger field in the last year? So we're pushing on brain health, neurosciences, um, and being able to develop those areas well. We're an aging population here in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, we're graying um, as a population, and so we really need to get ahead of that. So that's been another big push for us. Wow, and I'm glad you took um, you took the time to describe that because, as you said, you know, COVID nineteen may be uh, you know what mm. a lot of people are talking about, but people are still they still have cancer, they still have heart disease, many people have loved ones who have Alzheimer's. So it's great to know that there is still uh, a robust system addressing those uh, health conditions as well. Absolutely, and. You know, we have to um, we have to take care of the urgent. But I think one of our responsibilities as you know, one of the largest healthcare systems in the United States is to look over the horizon and say, OK, what do we need to be prepared for next? I mentioned a few of these heart disease continues, um, cancer continues uh, with the graying of the American population. Alzheimer's is going to be, you know, a huge problem in many years. So we need to get ahead mm -hmm. of these. And uh, again, that's that third part I was talking about a minute yeah. ago. We need to look over the horizon, map out what we can, and, and try, to, try to really get ahead of those. Yeah. Speaking of getting ahead, you know, we can talk about, um, you know, moving forward with uh, vaccination as it relates to COVID-19. So uh, most people who will be watching this or listening have heard something about the COVID-19 mm. vaccines that are available. So, but can we first uh, do kind of like a vaccination one-on-one, -on -one, one -on -one, mm -hmm. um, kind of get to the nuts and bolts. How does a vaccine uh, get developed? What is that process timeline? You know, just someone sure. who knows nothing about how vaccines are created. What is that process? Well, let's start with kind of the traditional way that one makes a vaccine, okay? And, and, mm -hmm. and, and this is 2021 now. Um, technology, particularly genomic science, has advanced radically fast over the last several years, just like computers have advanced almost in parallel with the speed of, of the advancement. But the old way of making a vaccine was you took and isolated a particular virus, you killed it, you ground it up, and you gave a shot. Okay, <laughs> really, you know, that was the old uh, polio vaccine. You know, okay. the first polio vaccines, basically, that's what they did. And, um, and that development process was really quite long. It took a long time to figure out how to isolate the virus, how to kill it effectively, how to, um, you know, put it into a shot, scale that up. I mean, it was really complicated. And, and, you know, vaccines can take, just to develop the first one, can take somewhere between, you know, five to 10 years to get a good vaccine. It took us about, for example, when Ebola broke out in Africa, and we had those cases here in the United States, mm -hmm. it, it took about three and a half or four years to get the first Ebola vaccine that was ready to even test. So that's kind of the old way, the old technology of developing vaccines and it's it's quite slow and laborious and um, that's all changed so the newer technologies are based upon genomics uh, we we now know 
Um, we knew actually this time a year ago, in January of last year, we had the first genomic sequence of SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. And that sequence was published and immediately people in several different companies started to develop uh, vaccines uh, for that particular virus. And that was based upon work with earlier versions, if you will, the SARS and MERS. You may have heard about those several mm -hmm. years ago. Um, that's why this is called SARS-CoV-2, because there was CoV-1, which was MERS, and then now we have SARS-CoV-2. But those companies, the pharmaceutical companies, began to very quickly, based upon the DNA, excuse me, the RNA sequence of the coronavirus, they started to work on vaccines. And that really gave us a head start. We, a, we started early, and then B, we used these new technologies to develop vaccines um, in a faster and uh, more efficient, efficient way. So let me talk for a minute about how these new vaccines are developed compared to the old way, which I mentioned a minute ago. So the, there, there are three different kinds of, three, three main different kinds of vaccines that are being developed. So the first two out, we've all heard of them. It's the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and those are uh, using a technology that's about 10 years old and had been in clinical studies already, not for SARS but for, uh, or coronavirus, but for other uh, purposes. And those actually use a little tiny snippet of, um, of nucleic acid, so-called RNA. So in the body, DNA, everybody knows about DNA. DNA gets copied into RNA, and then that RNA gets turned into a protein. All the proteins in our body are made through that process. And uh, these two companies, um, the one that was um, collaboratively worked on with Pfizer is called uh, BioNTech, and then the other one is Moderna. That's the other vaccine. Uh, they use a little snippet of this genetic code and it's made in a big test tube, basically, in, in, in big vats. And it specifically allows, once it is shot into the body, it allows the body to make the protein, just one little snippet of that coronavirus. And what that does, it, it tricks the immune system into thinking the whole body is infected. And that's how the immune system responds. Antibodies are developed. Uh, little lymphocytes, uh, white blood cells in the body called T cells and B cells get a little bit angry. We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> Those T cells and B cells get a little bit angry because they think they're fighting a real virus, but in, instead of the whole virus, it's just one little tiny snippet of the virus, uh, a little protein called the spike protein that the immune system is responding to. The body makes those antibodies. It, it teaches those T cells and B cells, these white blood cells, to fight off the real um, coronavirus when the body is exposed to it. So that method, this mRNA method, is very fast. We'll talk about safety in just a few minutes. It, they, they have both had outstanding safety profiles. Um, and, and this is the new way. This is how you can do this in such a short period of time is that DNA-based technology is like computers, okay? We remember the big box computer uh, that was slow. That's like the old TV sets that you may have had when you're my age and you were growing up that were this big <laughs> before we had everything else. The, this technology has really developed at a pace 
that is going to change how we think about making vaccines for everything into the future. Wow. And, and think about this, Moderna, the company that makes this particular, uh, the second um, uh, vaccine that was approved, is working on a flu vaccine that you maybe don't have to take but once or twice in your life. Okay. Whoa. These, yeah. So, and, and there will be other vaccines based upon these technologies, not only for future threats like um, uh, COVID-19, but for the standard things that we, we already get. So it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, technology. Now there are two other technologies. There's the, there's a, a technology that, um, um, has been used to fight uh, Ebola. There's an FDA approved Ebola vaccine. Didn't know that, but if Ebola ever comes to the United States, we have a vaccine for that. Hmm. Uh, that technology is based on um, basically engineering a little virus uh, like we get with the common cold and uh, putting that little protein, the spike protein on the outside. And that technology is being used by AstraZeneca. This was recently approved in the United Kingdom in the UK. Um, is approved uh, for treating um, or preventing COVID-19. And then there's another company called Janssen, which is part of Johnson & Johnson. We all know baby powder, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, Johnson & Johnson has another similar kind of uh, vaccine uh, that's in development right now. And we're, we're testing that here in, in Orlando at uh, Advent Health. And these vaccines are going to be the vaccines, I believe, that are going to be necessary to wipe out um, COVID-19 across the globe. And the reason is you don't have to keep them cold. Uh, they're very inexpensive to make, uh, pennies to make these kinds of uh, vaccines. And that's what it's gonna take is to actually vaccinate the entire planet. So we don't have, like we were chasing polio, where everybody remembers we, had, we worried about polio when we were kids. Mm. We wiped out polio because we were able to vaccinate the entire planet. So those are the two major kinds of vaccines. And then we have some more traditional vaccines that are made like a flu vaccine. And those take longer to develop. And so those vaccines are probably, those more traditional vaccines are not gonna be ready until probably the fall could be even later in the year as those traditional vaccines. So the new technologies have allowed us to move faster and allowed us to start fighting the pandemic much sooner than we would have otherwise. So where would you say the, um, the narrative of, so I remember maybe it was in the fall or late fall, there was talk of, okay, there's going to be a vaccine by the end of the year. And mm -hmm. there was a sort of panic because it's like, oh, this is too soon. So like, where do you think, cause that was at least in my circles and online, people were saying mm -hmm. this is way too soon. Um, where, where did that come from? Because you're saying yeah. like, you know, it was seemed like a, a natural next step in the process on in your side of the world, you know, and with your um, insight and just understanding how these developments work, but where's, when, when did that disconnect happen? Yeah, well, a couple of things happened. The first one is that um, this, RNA technology that we were talking about has been in development for more than a decade. Mm -hmm. So it was just not seen. We didn't see it because we didn't have a pandemic or a crisis to really wake us up and go, okay, how are vaccines made? A year mm -hmm. ago, was anybody talking about how vaccines are made and no, how, no. how long it takes <laughs> to develop them? We were just kind of like, okay, whatever. Uh, but the pandemic really allowed us to take that decade long work 
and put it into action uh, very quickly. Wow. Now, the second thing that happened that I think is important for your, um, your viewers and listeners is that the typical way of making a vaccine is you make a little bit, you test it in a few people, you make a little bit more, you test it in some more people, mm -hmm. and then eventually over years, you get to the answer. Now, one thing that happened was, is there was this investment by the federal government, Operation Warp Speed, we've all heard about it. And what happened was they ran those in parallel. So there was a little bit of testing, but they made all the doses of the vaccine that would be needed. So you didn't have this, this, and then that, and then this, and then that. Mm -hmm. You ran it all at once. So that really accelerated the pace Okay. Now, the reason that has never happened in the past is we never had a pandemic to really push us to do it that way, where you okay. run these things side by side. And I think that kind of got lost in the message of, oh, this is getting rushed, okay, and, mm -hmm. and, and that's that. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting is that um, the rules for, the rules that the FDA puts in place for how one develops vaccines, none of those were changed or broken. Nobody broke rules to make it work this fast. Companies had been going slow because they're used to going slow. They didn't have a pandemic to really push things forward. But I can tell you this, and, and I've seen this from the inside as we've worked on this vaccine trial that I told you about a minute ago with Janssen, we, no corners have been cut. All the same regulatory environments in place, in fact, the bar went up from a regulatory standpoint. The FDA asked for more people to be involved in the clinical studies than, than a flu vaccine would typically be tested in. So really, um, the, the urgency came from the pandemic and by creating these more streamlined processes, not by changing the rules. Mm. And I think that's something that, you know, your, your, your listeners and viewers are really go, gonna wanna understand. The rules weren't changed. If anything, like I said, they were a little bit more stringent. It's just that we had this urgency um, and the need uh, to develop these vaccines more quickly. Yeah, it sounds like supply and demand, you know, at the end of the oh, day. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know. And I think the demand's pretty high. Yeah, uh, I would say. <laughs> um, you know, I think we, we feel some pressure. And, um, you know, as being, I, I'm, I'm the principal investigator of this um, trial with, with Janssen here in Orlando. We had a fantastic response from our community. People who volunteered to participate in the research study, not only for themselves, because they, they felt that urgency of being able to do something to help, you know, their neighbor, their friends, their parents, um, you know, the whole world. And, and, uh, and people showed up, they raised their hand and they said, we understand there's some uncertainty, but they wanted to participate in the clinical studies. And that was true across the globe. Yeah. People stepped up and, and you know, you, you don't participate in these kinds of studies um, because we, we give you a check for 20 bucks to help pay for your gas. <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to have a real um, um, commitment to doing something that's good for the world, for your community, for your family to participate. And so these trials enrolled in, in record time. I mean, people mm -hmm. showed up, they signed up, they went through the whole standard process. 
And so I think the other thing that accelerated that was just the willingness of people to participate in the clinical studies. Wow. So it's a combination of, you know, the technology had already been developed. The process was already there. And then alongside that, you had um, a sense of community, global realization of community to mm -hmm. step up. So with those two things, boom, we have Boom. And I, I think that second piece is something that people haven't really talked about. I mean, you mm. know, the human nature is oftentimes to gravitate towards the negative or what can go wrong. Um, but there's so much that's gone right around the development of these new vaccines that um, that I think we can be, you know, proud of people and, and really appreciate um, what people have done to step up and work double time and and push a little bit harder and, and, and to respond to this from a community standpoint, it's just amazing to me. Yeah, that is incredible. And you're right, that's the side we don't often hear about. <laughs> but I was wondering if you could, cause I'm sure you've been in these situations, if you, um, you know, someone plainly comes up to you and says, how can I trust the Pfizer? How can I trust the Moderna vaccines? Yeah. Like in an elevator pitch, what's your elevator pitch for or in response to how can I know the vaccines can be trusted? Yeah, so a couple of things. Let, let me just say the elevator pitch is, you know, we formed a scientific review committee here at Advent Health that went through all of the data. There's beautiful data transparency. You can go out and look at all the results from those uh, two clinical trials. You can see um, how many people's arms hurt, how many people got tired, how many headaches there were. Oh, wow. I mean, it's all sitting there. Mm -hmm. And um, you can go to FDA.gov and read for yourself. But we formed a scientific um, uh, review panel to take a second look at that data in addition to the experts at FDA and those who advise the F FDA on that. So my elevator pitch is I've seen all the data and it's quite compelling. And, and um, I use what I call my, you know, kind of mother, brother, neighbor rule. <laughs> hmm. And that is, you know, is this something I'd recommend to my mother or my brother or a neighbor as a physician? That's just a perspective, perspective that I often take in addition to the data. Um, but I, without a doubt, would recommend these two vi uh, vaccines for, for my mother, my brother, or my, my neighbor. The, the safety profile is, is outstanding. And you know, um, with regards to the efficacy, does it work? Can it prevent um, COVID? You know, the flu vaccine, depending on the year, is probably about 70% effective or something like that. Mm. These are 95% effective at preventing a symptomatic case of COVID. And both of these vaccine were shown, uh, vaccines were shown to be 100% effective at keeping out of the hospital with COVID. So even the few, the one in 20 people who, um, who developed a case of COVID, it was mild and didn't cause them to go into the hospital. So you couldn't design a vaccine that looked any better than these first two vaccines that are out of the gate. And I think that extra review has given confidence not only to our leaders at Advent Health, but to our physicians at Advent Health who are also you know, data driven and wanna know the answer to that question. How would you say the rollout um, differs? Because, um, you know, there's this, depending on where you live um, and then what you do for a living, 
you know, mm-hmm. there's this uh, this order, like almost like taking a number or mm-hmm. signing up to take the vaccine. Can you yeah. describe like how exactly this is different than just going to your pharmacy, going to Walgreens, CVS to, you know, get your flu shot. But for this, there's like a there's an order you have to wait. Um, can you like unpack that a little bit? Yeah, you know, there was there was discussion starting back as early as May. Um, when when the vaccines were being planned and developed about who should get the vaccine first. And the reason for that is that the supply and the demand we knew were going to be mismatched. So every year when you get your flu vaccine, you know, back in the springtime, we look at what flu is developing in other parts of the world and we say, okay, we're going to make a flu vaccine. You make it and you make enough doses at one time to, so everybody can get a flu shot at one time. This is different because we knew the supply of the vaccine was going to be limited in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then the question is really one of uh, a variety of different perspectives. Um, And and the ethicists began to meet in different parts of the world. Indeed, uh, multiple groups met here in the United States to discuss this question. Who should be first if you have limited amount of vaccine who, who do you put to the front of the line? And several principles came out of that uh, conversation that led to the development of these prioritizations uh, as well. Let me walk through a few of those. One is, and the reason that our employees were in phase 1A, is you know the people who take care of others need to be present. If we're sick with COVID and can't care for others, right. there's a multiplier in the wrong direction on that. So by protecting our, our employees, our healthcare employees, that helps us continue our mission to take care of, of others. The next step was really, I think, maybe a little bit more controversial and it had to do with, you know, do you prevent the spread of COVID throughout a community? Do you protect individuals who are the most vulnerable? And these really have competing um, Uh, competing ethical conversations and neither one is actually right or wrong. And Mm -hmm. so what ended up happening was um, the the advisory committee that advises the CDC, uh, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, made a recommendation on that list of prioritization, which was based upon earlier ethical conversations that had occurred all the way through the summer. So it was a very thoughtful process from an ethical standpoint. What happened next was really the federal government said um, to each of the states, go make your own rules. Here's some recommendations. But the governors and each executive branch of each of the states had the opportunity to, to flex those rules a little bit. And I think that's where some of the confusion really came into the discussion is not about you know, this ethical dilemma, really, this question, do you protect people and prevent spread or do you protect the most vulnerable? I think most of the states have really followed the, the CDC recommendation to, to protect, uh, protect vulnerable individuals in this mm-hmm. phase 1A, 1B yeah. setting. So it's, it's really challenging when you have this limited supply and demand. And in the United States, we're not faced with that very often. In many countries, in many countries, um, healthcare resources 
have to be rationed. There have to be really hard decisions made about who gets what treatment, whether this person can have surgery, whether they have to wait. You know, we hear these discussions from other countries, but we really don't face that on a regular basis here in the U.S. So I think that's why it was lifted up really as a, what, I can't have it today when I want it today <laughs> because we live in the United States and we're used to being able to order something on Amazon and it comes to the front porch. You know, mm -hmm. I think, it, you know, we're, I wouldn't say we're spoiled here in the U.S., but it certainly heightened the conversation in a way that I think we can all appreciate. If you want something, you want it yesterday. Um, but when there's limited supply, you know, that's really how we got to this point. Yeah. All in all, I can say this. I know there's been a lot of discussion around, really around the execution on getting doses of vaccines out. Um, I'm encouraged with where we are right now. The pace is picking up. We're getting the wheels turning on the machines that can give more shots to more people. And I think we're, I think we're in pretty good, pretty good um, shape. The promise of 20 million vaccines before the end of the year, I think was a little bit ambitious. Um, and at the, at the end of the day that we got one vaccine in one arm in less than one year from the sequencing of this virus, it's a moonshot. Like it's, hmm. it's like, to me, it's like putting a man on the moon. We said we were gonna do it. It took, took roughly a decade, which was amazing. To get a vaccine made that works, that's safe um, in less than one year, I think is an amazing accomplishment. And I would just say, I, I, I hope we can just take a big deep breath at some point in time and acknowledge that and say, when it's my turn, you know, I'll, I'll be in line and there will be plenty of doses by early summer for everybody in the U.S. Oh, really? I was going to say, when do Absolutely. you think, um, you know, a, a larger percentage of the population will have access? And you're saying summertime. Absolutely. I wow. think by, by certainly by um, certainly by the 4th of July, probably before that, everybody who, who wants to take a vaccine will have a dose available for them. It's. Wow. Uh, yeah, both Moderna, Pfizer, and um, more recently, if AstraZeneca is approved, um, we'll, have, we'll have more than 300 million doses in the U.S. So once vac vaccinated, excuse me, can the person just walk around with their mask off? Is there no more social distancing? You know, it's all of a sudden it's like, you know, I'm totally immune. I can walk around, I can interact however I want, I can go wherever, interact with whomever, you know, so what is like- Oh, what a dream. <laughs> <laughs> what a dream. Um, eventually, yes. So when, when, when the enough people in the population uh, have their vaccine, we're gonna get to where you were talking about and, <laughs> and you know, praise be the day that that happens, we're, we're gonna get there, but we, we're not gonna be able to do that in the beginning. And, and let, let me explain the why behind that, you know, because yeah. I think you, you may have heard the recommendation will be st people still need to distance, wear a mask, you know, do the things that we've been talking about for the last year. Um, but, but here are some kind of factoids or little, little facts that I, I think your, your listeners and your viewers can take away. I mentioned earlier, the vaccine is 95% effective. It's not 100%, it's 95%. That means one in 20 people may still get an infection compared to somebody who you know, didn't have the vaccine at all. 
So you can still get infection after you take the vaccine, but uh, to prevent you give, getting it yourself or a mild case yourself and giving it to somebody else, you still need to be masked up. So we wear masks and we distance not just for ourselves, we do it for our friends, our colleagues, our family, the person at the grocery store that we don't know. I mean, we do this because we care about others. That's what masks and vaccines are really about. Yeah. The second thing I'd like to point out is that um, we will begin to know that vaccines have taken hold when the case counts are going down and the percent of positive tests in our community goes down. We're just, there's going to be a lot of signs as we approach this larger, you know, beautiful day when we can all take our masks off and, and be closer to each other and go back a little bit. So I know that's disappointing for many people, but I, again, I want to come back to this. We, we need to continue to do those things, not really necessary for ourselves, but for the others who are around us. I mean, it is an act of love to wear a mask and stay apart. And, you know, as much as you want to hug somebody, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, but it, it's not, it's not about I or me. It becomes about us and we. And again, in, in the United States, sometimes we have a hard time thinking that way, right? It's, yeah. it's like I was saying before with the Amazon, I want something on the front porch tomorrow. This, this is something we're really in for the long haul, but fortunately the long haul is not going to be that long now. And when will like the pandemic label, when can that officially be removed once we have more people vaccinated and once we see case numbers and positivity rates declining, when can we say like, okay, folks, you know, maybe don't take off your mask, but like we're no longer under pandemic? Yeah. So let, let me say this. I think it's going to be, um, it's going to be not quite crystal clear. There's not like okay. a number or a fact where we're going to get to a point where we're going to say, hoorah, we're done. It's not a date on a calendar. Yeah. The reason I say that, it's going to be different in every community. Mm -hmm. So if you look today, I, you may have seen this um, uh, when you go surfing, surfing the web or watching the news, you may see these maps, these color-coded maps of all the different states. And they're all different colors right now. And yeah. we've had states that were, you know, bright red that are now not bright red. And, and so it's not as simple as saying that this thing is done. It's not going to be like you flip a switch and turn it off. There's still going to be little hot spots around. It's going to be about the community that you in, you're in and, and the circles that you keep within that community. And every person is going to have to define for themselves when is the pandemic over. And it depends, mm. again, upon that community. It'll be different in Orlando than it is in St. Louis, that it is in, you know, in Wisconsin. I mean, there are places in Wisconsin now that have very low case counts in the middle of the worst pandemic this country has ever seen. Oh. So it's going to be a local decision. And I, 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 I don't want that to sound trite, but I do think we're going to know when it approaches our community again, when our hospitals are not full in the ICU. Uh, when case counts go down and when the positive test rate goes down, we're going to know it. And speaking about different communities, what message, what type of message would you say is needed 
for communities who hold uh, trauma from times, and I'm thinking specifically of minority communities, uh, mm -hmm. black communities, um, where there has been a history of uh, medical experimentation or just a great distrust, mistrust of vaccinations, uh, period. And now, you know, thinking that this vaccine came out too fast, you know, you know, all these like yeah. pre preconceived notions coupled with trauma, what type of messaging and from whom, you know, should it come from? Well, before I answer your question, let me, let me just point out something that I find just absolutely positive about, uh, about this. We're having the conversation. For so many years, these, these traumas have been buried and they were not open for discussion. And people didn't feel comfortable about putting them out and, and, and really having the dialogue about what's happened in the past. And you know, the alignment of Black Lives Matter with this pandemic, I think really helped us get to that point as, you know, as a nation, hopefully. But even in our smaller communities, these, these are not things that have been spoken about freely and openly in the past. And I actually celebrate that. I think that's something that's incredibly important to take out of this is that now there's a dialogue about all those factors and uh, all, all the bad things that have happened previously. And I celebrate with the Black Lives Matter movement and with all persons of color who bring that dialogue with them. Put it out in the open. Let's talk about what does that history mean and how we can overcome that. And, you know, I'm probably not going to be the voice that will change a mind on that. But if we can encourage that conversation, a rich conversation within all communities, I think we're gonna move that forward. And suffice it to say, there will need to be a lot more conversation than what we've had so far. And um, you know, I think it's, it's silly some people stand up and say, trust me, I say it's safe. That's not enough. Right. <laughs> you know, it's a dialogue, it's, it's really about a community having information, understanding the past, and answering the questions um, in, both independently and as a community. Um, I do want to go back, and, and I've said it once before, and I'll say it again in, in, this, in this arena. There is also a, there is also this, um, this question of why. Why would a person want to take a vaccine with all of that history? Why? Mm -hmm. And every person has to answer that question. I've answered it for myself. I believe that this is helpful for others, not just for myself. I believe that this is the pathway for us as a community to get out of this pandemic. And I care enough to want to, you know, visit with my family and get close and, you know, do the things that we've done historically. And this for me is, these are the reasons that I feel compelled. Mm -hmm. And I would say all communities have to answer this question. It's not just um, black or uh, Latinx or, or Asian. It, 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 this is a question that all communities have to answer. Why would I want to take the vaccine beyond what it does for me? And that's a different dialogue that I think we'll get to in the coming months, particularly as we acknowledge the past and um, you know, do everything that we can to uh, try to prevent uh, the disparities that have been created historically.
Yeah, especially when they have deep roots. You're right. It won't take one person. It won't take just one conversation. It has to be intentional, um, intentional uh, dialogue and intentional listening too to understand um, those traumas. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Can you also talk about this uh, variant strand of uh, COVID-19 and um, the how the vaccines fare against it? Are the vaccines effective? Yeah. Um, you know, can you discuss that? Yeah. So these strains, there's a South African strain, there's the uh, UK strain, there are a few others. There was one identified last summer, uh, the, uh, the 614 uh, variant. And what, and what we know from the science at this point, and it's not deep and strong science, but it, it's, it's compelling, is that these, these little changes that occur in the, the virus uh, over time, um, they accumulate and they actually make it easier to pass uh, the coronavirus from one person to the next. It doesn't look like right now that the case of COVID that somebody gets is any worse that leads to more hospitalizations. That doesn't, that doesn't appear to be the case. Um, that may be in part uh, accounting for the rise in cases that we're seeing this winter, which is you know, five times higher than we saw in March of last year, which we yeah, thought was yeah. a surge. Yeah. Um, so so just, just so we understand what, that, what these strains actually mean, it's about ease of transmission from one person to the other, um, much easier transmission. Uh, with regards to the vaccines, there's there's there have been a few reports in the last week or two to suggest that um, the vaccines are still going to be active against these strains. I personally, based on the science, don't believe there's going to be any concern um, uh, with the vaccines. And the reason I say that is, is the human body has a rich and varied response to the vaccine. It doesn't just make one kind of antibody. It makes thousands of different antibodies against multiple parts of this particular uh, virus. And that, that really is different than some other treatments like we've heard about monoclonal antibodies where there is, there is real concern about whether they're going to be active or not. But with the vaccine, uh, the way they're built and designed, uh, I don't really have any concerns about whether the vaccine's gonna be active against the strains that we've seen thus far. And when you say it's much easier to pass along, are there extra precautions that we should be taking um, in addition to, you know, the mask and the six feet, you know, what else, what else no, do we do? <laughs> no, just do those, do those things and you're going to be just fine. I think that's, you know, it's coming back to that core message. Um, I'll give you an example. We've heard about these super spreader events where yes. one person in a crowd can give it to many people. Um, these strains are more likely uh, based upon some modeling and work that we've seen to be spread very quickly throughout these super spreader events. So small groups are going to continue to be important, masking, distancing, all the same things um, uh, apply. So um, fortunately, we do have the tools in the toolkit uh, to break the strains. It's called the vaccine and all mm -hmm. the things like masks and dif uh, distancing. And um, this can be controlled. So, you know, in the beginning, there was a lot of um, worry about this being, you know, a super, super, you know, killer bug and that sort of thing. 
it's not proven to be the case in the six weeks or so since we've uh, understood more about this strain. Yeah. And one more point about the vaccine before we start to wind down a bit. What are some of the common side effects of the two vaccines? And how well, do I they hope, differ I hope. if they do differ from other vaccines? Yeah. So I, I'm hopeful that your um, listeners and, and those watching um, have had their flu vaccine recently. And we know that people vary in, in how they respond to a vaccine. And and when I when I was younger, I used to get my flu vaccine on on a Friday so I could you know hang out over the weekend and not have to work because I felt bad. I had and, and it's very similar with this vaccine as well. Uh, fatigue, headache, arm is sore. Mm -hmm. You know, doing this sort of thing. Um, uh, there are a few people that will have fever and chills. That's not common, but it happens. And and those those are the those are the, the, the main ones. I think the fatigue and the headache, you know, some people say they feel like they're getting the flu. Mm -hmm. Just to be very clear, these, these are not viruses that, these vaccines are not viruses that you can transmit or get infected with. Um, that's just, it's, it's not how they work. But, but it does feel like you may be coming down with a little something. The good news is um, they're, they're time limited. They last a day or two. Uh, people recover from them very quickly. Um, we recommend taking Tylenol or something like ibuprofen for, for people who have a little fever or sore arm or something like that. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, you know, I think there is this, there was this um, uh, perception early on about tolerability of these vaccines. And I think now that they've been out and about, um, it's not as big of a concern as, as, as one would have thought uh, based upon the news reports that we saw early on. Yeah. And that's something that we're seeing. Yeah. <laughs> there's like a bit of sensationalism um, sometimes when people really focus on the anomalies, I would say. Um, and that tends to uh, fan the flames of people who don't want to trust, you know, they'll hear of one specific case without knowing specifics surrounding that one case, but solely contributing yeah. it to the vaccine. And I think that's harmful and reckless. It is, um, it's unfortunately, and I would, I would agree with that. The, um, you know, the one thing that I would, um, I would urge is that by now, somebody probably knows somebody who's had a vaccine, talk to them. You know, you can go look up the date on the FDA um, webpage, probably not going to do that, but go talk to somebody who's had the vaccine and get their experiences. And, and if you talk to enough people, you're, you'll understand it. It may be, it may produce a little bit more, um, um, more, maybe just a slight bit more symptoms than what you would expect with the flu vaccine. Um, but it, as it, as it goes, you have a choice. You can either get COVID or you can have you know, a sore arm and maybe be tired for a couple of days. I, it's a, for me, it was a pretty easy decision, not only for myself, but that as I said before, easy. the people around me. <laughs> and um, and there are there's a very, very small number of people that will have more severe reactions. I think everybody uh, may have seen the news reports about um, the uh, reactions that occurred in, in, the, in, in the United Kingdom with those first couple of doses. We now have data to show that that kind of uh, severe reaction occurs with um, 
a very low frequency, one in 100,000, okay? It's a very small number of people. And by and large, these are people who carry EpiPens with them already and have a history of allergies. And those people mm. need to speak with their, they need to speak with their doctor and be in a special setting if, they, if they're gonna choose to take the vaccine. So we've learned a lot in the last uh, couple of months or less. Yeah. And, and what we've learned has actually increased our confidence in the safety of these two vaccines rather than decreased. And so we've, again, you know, we had those first two cases in the UK. Now we have this big reporting system that tells us it's about one in a hundred thousand. Okay. And, and nobody's died. Um, they get a shot of um, Benadryl and some epinephrine and everybody recovers. And so, you know, that's about giving uh, a vaccine in a safe location with people who are trained. If you have a history of allergy, you need to be in a special place. You need to be at a hospital, not in a parking lot, if you, if you understand, right? So, and I think most, pe most people understand that if they have that condition. What will you say our normal will look like post-pandemic? Uh, post you know, I, I am very hopeful that, um, that we will have learned many things from the pandemic um, that will make life after the pandemic just pretty amazing. I think we, mm. if, if we slow down and recognize what we've missed during the pandemic, it's really been about the uh, collegiality, uh, friendships, connections, you know, the communal community environment, um, you, you know, um, prayer groups, you, you name it, whatever that smaller environment is where we really connect with others. I think many of us long for that. I mean, that's, that's a real big miss. Um, and, and it's been tough, uh, particularly on, on our, my, my mother, other uh, older people who have to, you know, to protect themselves have had to really um, not necessarily isolate, but just reduce the number of interactions. Yeah. That makes the world go round. That's, you know, it's, it's one of the richest and most uh, wonderful parts of our life. And I think, I think there'll be a big appreciation um, for those kinds of uh, community interactions and just reconnecting with people. It's, I, I, I see it as being extremely positive um, because sometimes you don't really know what you're missing until you miss it. So it'll, it's going to be a fantastic, beautiful thing. That's my, <laughs> that's my prediction for the future. And, and I hope people see this as being, you know, kind of a, a real test of our, you know, of our um, connection, our faith, our community. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting out of this. I know everybody else is, but it's going to be bigger than I think most people predict. Wow. Thank you so much for that perspective. Um, is there anything else you would like to add? Um, something that we may not have covered um, about this that you think people should know, or even, you know, you already just gave us a great message. <laughs> but, well, you know, I think, I think I would just leave with that word. I think yeah. that is, that is the word of, um, of the next six months is, is hope, a little bit of patience. You know, um, as we talked about before, it's, it's easy to gravitate towards the, you know, why didn't we give 20 million shots? We gave a lot of shots. <laughs> we're doing a lot better than we were 
You know, it, it's, it's a remarkable um, scientific achievement, but the human involvement here in the next six months is going to be so, so very important. And I, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, certainly by the summer, if not early in the fall, we're going to be out of this pandemic. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And even before that, I'm really looking forward to an opportunity to get the vaccine. I can't wait. Wait. I can't wait. <laughs> that's, that's a great attitude to have. And, and maybe we can get back together after that and talk about other things other than the pandemic. There's so much wonderful, you know, groundbreaking science that's going on these days in other areas. And uh, we're, we're in a new era of uh, scientific discovery and application. And, and, and I'm very hopeful about that, too. Me, too. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Smith, for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of News Points on the Air. News Points on the Air is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Milan Medley. Executive producers are Dan Weber, Julio Munoz, and Kimberly Moran. Graphics are by Jonathan LaPointe. Listen and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Share with your family and friends. Give us a five-star rating. I said five, nothing less, and write a review. Also, be sure to subscribe to News Points. That's our weekly digital newsletter with news stories, special announcements, and ministry resources. Go to nadavenist.org, then click on News. If you have any questions for me, send them to ontheair at nadavenist.org. That's ontheair at nadavenist.org. That's all for this week. We'll see you next time.